0: All right, guys, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning. As it comes to us, Lord, I thank you that it is um, eternally true. And Lord, we, we also thank you that it is a powerful word, that your word comes to us this morning. It does so with power. And so, Lord, we ask that you would take your true and powerful word, Lord, that you would write it on our hearts as your people, that you would use... Your word right now, Lord, to shape and to form us as a people. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, guys, uh, as you know, hopefully if you've been um, tracking with us the last couple of weeks, we are studying the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a wildly helpful book for us as a church. Um, You will be helped immensely if you have the Bible open in front of you this morning or maybe on your phone and you just stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, As we have been looking through this letter, um, one of the reasons why it's so helpful, there's a variety of reasons, is one, it shows us really who God has designed us to be, and we've seen this, that that Paul addresses this church through this letter, and he he calls them at the very beginning, the very people of God, they are sanctified in Christ, they are called to be saints together. These, These are people who have been transformed by God's grace and have been brought into a relationship, not just with God, but also with each other. So it's an incredibly helpful book. As, it, as we read it and examine it, it gives us a picture of who we ought to be as a people redeemed by Christ. okay? As the very people of God. As we've been studying this book, we've seen, and we will continue to see throughout this um, study, that we are a people who are to be united, who are to be loving, and who are to be a holy people as the people of God. However, as we have been examining this letter, we've also seen that not just is there a picture of how God designs his people to be, we also see that there are problems in their midst. These are people who are struggling with a variety of problems. These are a young group. The church at Corinth is a young group, wild young people who, are, who came to Christ out of the pagan Corinthian culture. And who are really struggling to embrace this new identity as the people of God, living in their reality, living in the city that they call home. In chapters 1 through 4, one of the problems that we saw was that, really it was the, kind of the center focus of Paul's writing in chapters 1 through 4, is that these were people who were struggling with division. They were wild people and they were wildly divided. They were just struggling to understand the gospel, to apply the gospel. They were lining themselves up with different leaders. They had a hard understanding, of difficult time understanding what biblical leadership looked like. And verses 5 through 7, the focus kind of shifts for Paul. And the problem that he is specifically addressing, that we saw him begin to address last week, is the problem of sexual immorality. The problem of sexual immorality. Last week we saw that he began to address a kind of sexual or immorality that he says isn't, shouldn't be tolerated in the church. It's the kind that's not even tolerated, he says, in the pagan world itself. What business do you as the people of God have tolerating this sin in your midst when they out there say this is not okay? Right? This is a major, major problem. Look at verses, the end of chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. His, his focus begins to shift just a little bit. For what I have to do with, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, he says. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In these verses, Paul's, focus begins to shift a little bit, and he begins to zero in on this idea of judging the church, judging one another, and discipline that happens within the congregation. So really, this one problem in chapter 5 becomes two problems, the problem of sexual immorality and the problem of judgment within the church. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6 specifically speak to the latter. Okay? The reason why I mention this is because it, you could read this passage and you could think that this issue of judging is specifically related to that of sexual immorality because it's on the front end at the beginning of chapter 5 and towards the end of chapter 6. But really, he's addressing the issue of judging the sins within the church, okay? The reason why that's important is because, the reason we know that is because he specifically calls these things trivial matters, okay? So it's important as we step into this chapter to understand exactly what he's doing in this section, chapters 5 through 7. Recently, I was speaking with somebody who was a part of a church, um, part of a church for, for many, many years, Part of um, the church for I think over 20 years. And at some point they left the church. And as they were beginning to tell me the reason for leaving the church, and it wasn't just them that left the church, it was really a church split that happened in the midst of this congregation. Um, essentially there was a couple of individuals that were, that were caught in sin, that their sin was exposed within the congregation. As the sin was exposed and church discipline started to happen, um, there was a lot of people, it was a larger church, there was a lot of people who did not like how leadership was responding to the sin. So as a result, it produced one conflict after another. And some over 200 people ended up leaving this congregation because of the conflict that was unable to be resolved within the church. There's many reasons why people leave churches, right? Oftentimes there's theological reasons. Oftentimes the reasons people leave the church is because of preferential uh, reasons. They don't prefer a type of music. They don't prefer a type of preaching. They have different preferences. But by and large, one of the main reasons why Christians leave churches is because of unresolved conflict. It's because we can't get along with each other. (laughs) That's really one of the main reasons why church splits, why people leave churches, is because the idea of showing up to church and seeing somebody on a Sunday morning that you have beef with, that's a hard one to swallow, right? It's a lot easier to just go down the road. Church conflict is one of the major reasons that churches divide and split. As we live, folks, in, this, in the context of community, with other humans, the truth is, We should expect each other to live humanly, okay? We should expect human nature to come out of each and every one of us. Here at Parkview East, we have a saying, we say it, I say it on a regular basis. I might be the only one who says it, I don't know. But I say it often. Wherever there is people, there is poop. Guaranteed. Wherever there is people, there will be poop. In fact, gathering people, one of the primary things you have to figure out is when you have a lot of people together on a regular basis, how do you get rid of poop, right? And, and really, I mean, I hate to be crude, I'm not trying to be crude, but this is essentially what Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1-11. It's a recipe for getting rid of conflict, okay? How do you deal with conflict? And as you live in life together with other people, Conflict is not a matter of if, he tells us. Very first word in this passage, it's a matter always of when. It's going to happen. Wherever there's people, there will be poop. You can take it to the bank. Intentional conflict, unintentionally, it's going to happen. In this passage, Paul asks us a basic question. He asks us to consider how will we respond as the people? How should we respond as the people of God when conflict emerges in our congregation? When we have problems with brothers and sisters in the faith? How should we respond? How do we deal with conflict? In the first portion of this chapter, Paul tells us, and he, he calls out the Corinthians, because they are dealing with problems in the church in a wrong way. They're not dealing rightly with issues of tension and conflict in the church. Paul's already established that we are not to judge those that are outside of the church. That's God's job, but in verses six one through 11, chapter six one through eleven, His focus shifts. Not only is it a problem when we judge those outside the church, He says, it's also a major problem when we allow those outside the church to judge us, the ones who are inside the church. That's equally problematic. And this is a this is a problem that we see that we have seen the Corinthians are really struggling with. Considerably, this summer we have a small little fishing boat, and we don't—I don't take it out very often. But I took it out towards the end of the summer with—I think it was maybe Zach. I can't remember which boy it was. Maybe it was both. I don't remember. But we took him out in the the boat, and I was backing it in. i was still working on my backing skills. Just still working on my boating skills in general. Okay, Um, back it into the water, and believe it was Zach was sitting in the back of the boat, and as I was backing it, the boat was going into the water. Um, the water started coming into the boat. I had forgot to plug the drain plug, which is a pretty big thing if you're going to be boating on the water with children, okay? Um, so as the water, the boat was backing into the water, the drain plug was missing, and, and suddenly, I think it was Zach, was like, Dad, there's water is like rushing into the boat. We've got a major problem. They're like, okay, yeah, so pull it out, fix the plug. The problem with the Corinthian church is very similar. See, the boat is supposed to go in the water. The water is not supposed to come into the boat. And at Corinth, the culture out there, the water was making its way into the boat, was making its way into the church. The issues, the values, the ethics, the the morals of out there were beginning to influence and shape virtually every aspect of life for this church. Even the way they dealt with conflict. Now, how in this ancient world were Jews dealing with conflict? It's really helpful to understand Paul's argument, to understand how Jews dealt historically with conflict. When legal matters came up, the Roman Empire, where Church of Corinth would have been, the Roman Empire gave incredible freedom to the Jewish people to deal with their own issues legally, to deal legally with their own matters. The Roman Empire said, hey, listen, if you can keep it from coming to us, great. You have the power, you have the freedom, you have the ability to deal with this yourself. Please do so. And this is precisely how they dealt with their legal matters. If they had a legal issue come up, they would take it to the synagogue. The synagogue was the place that they went to to look for judgment. They would engage the experts who were experts of the law If I had a problem with Ronnie, Ronnie and myself, we would go to the the synagogue, we would deal with the experts of the law, we would take our case, they would lay the case out, and then you know what they would do? They would take the, the Bible, the Old Testament, they would open it up, and they would begin to examine the case. And they would make a decision, they would make a verdict, a judgment of the case based on the law. And this judgment would be binding. We would agree to this. Whatever they decided was the verdict. And they did this for a couple of reasons. One, because it promoted unity. They were one people. They were God's chosen people. And to do things this way promoted the unity that God had established within the community. But secondly, and possibly more importantly, they did things this way because, and here's the deal, they actually believed that God's word, the Old Testament, that God's law spoke to their everyday life. They actually believed that the solution for the conflict between the brothers or the sisters or the families or whatever was going on could be dealt with, should be dealt with by examining God's Word, the Scriptures. And they empowered God's Word. They believed it could happen. They examined it, and they actually did it. And folks, the truth is, for as Christians today, we believe the exact same thing. We believe that God's Word... It should be our starting point always for dealing with any issue we face in life, not just conflict, but big decisions, decisions, who will I marry, where should I work, how much money should I make, how much money should I give, I mean, just every decision in life, we believe the exact same thing, that God's word guides us in these decisions. They preferred, Jews preferred to keep their issues in house. Not only to show the world the picture of a unified people, but also because they understood that if they took their issues to a pagan court, would be the equivalent of saying that the world around them was better equipped to deal and to answer the problems they were facing. Better so than God himself. They They would say, going out there is an indication that you need help. God isn't sufficient for your problems. Now, here's why. And to know why the Jews felt so strongly about that is because you have to understand the system, the Greek and the Roman court system, that they would have gone to. What makes matters even worse is when you consider how courts in their day actually functioned. See, back in their day, they saw the public courts were viewed as a form of entertainment. They were a way to entertain the public right? was this thing called the Bema Seat, the Bema Seat, and the Jew, for the Jewish culture would have been in the synagogue. It was an elevated platform. It's where the, the, the priests would have stood, sat, where the judgment would have been decreed. People would have listened to what was said. And in the public, in Greco-Roman world, the Bema Seat was at the center of the marketplace. Right? So your judge would sit on an elevated platform in the middle of a marketplace. The idea was that as you go to the market to maybe see and be seen, as you go to the market to get food, to get clothes, that you could also walk by and you could see the drama of a current local case unfolding before you. You could hear all the, the details of your neighbor's lives and the sin that they're involved in would be exposed and you would, you'd be able to get your food for that evening while you listened to their dirty laundry aired before the entire community. It was a form, it was a public spectacle. It was a form of entertainment. Local lawsuit was a public spectacle for the entire community. In fact, the the judge, as they were making the verdict, the the jurors in those days, you would have jurors that was admit as as many as like 200 people in a civil case. So your jury would be 200 individuals that are listening to this. In a a criminal case, there'd be as many, there's there's historical evidence, there's as many as 6,000 jurors in one case. And a majority vote would, would decide the verdict, and that verdict would be binding. And what, what Jews saw in the day was, we can, how can we take our issues here out there and make a public spectacle of this entire thing? Not happening, let alone the fact that those courts were corrupt. They were completely corrupt. If you had wealth... If you had influence, if you had status in the community, it tilted the scales of justice in your favor. So obviously the ones who didn't have those things, who had no wealth, who had no significance, who had no influence in the community, if you were poor in the community, the odds were always stacked against you. Verdicts could be bought. Bribery was a constant way to get the the, the judge to see things in your favor. Paul says to the church at Corinth, Brothers and sisters, You are taking these trivial cases into that public square. You have everything you need as the people of God. You have everything you need to deal with these trivial matters. And you are choosing to make a spectacle? To make a spectacle of your conflict? A mockery of your God? Why would those with the Spirit of God go to them who do not have the Spirit of God and say, help us make a decision. Help us, you who do not have the mind of Christ, within chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, is what sets us apart from the the world around us, is that we have the mind of Christ and we are united as the people, the body of Christ. Why would you go out there and make a mockery of your God? You have everything you know. Then he goes on in verse 2 and says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? See, the idea, this is an idea that's developed throughout the New Testament. We see it especially in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation 20. Those who are faithful to Christ have the authority of Christ and will one day eventually reign with Christ in a position not just of authority as a king but also that as a judge. And he says, listen, this is your destiny. This is your eternal destiny. You will be judging them. Why are you going out there asking them, inviting them to judge you? Do you not know, he says in verse 3, you will also judge the angels. These mighty, angelic, powerful, supernatural beings. Don't you realize that your destiny is that of a cosmic judge? Yet you're going out there to the corrupt judges of the world, the ones who one day you will judge and asking them for help. You should be able to figure these things out. These are trivial matters. Now what he's not saying, and we know this because as we read the whole New Testament, what he's not saying is that there's no place for civil courts and judges. He's not saying there is no use for them. Paul got beat in Romans 16. He appealed as a Roman citizen to those judges, to Roman law. So again, in Acts 25, for the tribunal, Paul appeals to Caesar. In Romans 13, we know that Paul says, every person should be subject to the governing authorities that have been placed over them. So he's not saying that there's, you have no business, you have no right to submit to them. He's saying, no, actually, you do. But what he is saying is that when brother takes a brother to court, what does that do to the people of God? What does that do to the reputation of God? Thomas Merton says this, Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. Divisions in the church will always breed atheism in the world. When the world, when we are supposed to be a people that are loving Right? This is the picture of the church in Corinth. You should be a loving, a united, a holy people. When you can't be who God has made you to be, what witness does that bear to the watching world? You guys are supposed to be supposed to love one another, and you, can't, you don't even like one another. How does that work? Divisions in the church will constantly breed atheism in the world. Now, on the surface, this may may appear to be sort of a remote problem. It is a specific problem that the people of Corinth are facing. Obviously, Paul is not just addressing it. He's also prioritizing it here at the beginning of his letter. While this is a remote issue for the church of Corinth, it also remains a constant threat for us as a people today. The Corinthians were like us in so many ways. As we consider their hearts and what was driving them to such behavior, they were so, the, the truth is, these people were so committed to their personal rights. Their, their thought was, how dare you take what rightfully belongs to me? I'm gonna fight you out in court. I'm gonna get what's coming to me, and you're gonna get what's coming to you. There was no room for sacrifice, there was no room for love. I'll take you to court. The Corinthian church was obsessed with their rights, my rights. Don't you do anything that's going to infringe upon my rights. Folks, the truth is that sounds a lot like our culture today, right? It sounds a lot like our culture today, but it sounds nothing like the church that Jesus died on a cross to redeem and to empower and calls them to follow his example. Paul's not having any of it. That's the wrong way to deal with conflict. Paul presents for us a better way. There's a cure. There's a different way to deal with conflict. Rather than holding on, grasping firmly to that which belongs to you, which you rightfully deserve, Paul says there's another way. And he says, This way, we'll find out, and most of us will know from experience, it's not natural. It's not easy, but when it's followed, it reveals the power of the gospel. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, to have lawsuits at at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He's saying the very fact that you're going out there, like you're going out there because you want to win, the truth is if you take these issues, these trivial issues there, you've already lost. It's already a defeat for you. He goes on and says, to, um, Why not? He asks two questions Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See, this, Paul says, is the way of the cross. For the Christian, the thought of being defrauded, the the thought, the possibility of being wronged is something that we would rather suffer for ourselves than for our brothers and sisters. Now, he's not telling us to completely ignore problems. If you have issues, if you have conflict, if you need resolution, you take it to the church. And if there isn't anyone who's wise enough among you, anyone who's there to help, worst case scenario, you absorb it. You absorb it. Wouldn't you rather, brother and sister, have the blessing of God? Would you rather have the blessing of God on your life or the money that's rightfully coming to you? Would you rather have the temporary satisfaction of revenge? Or would you have the peace that comes from God himself? This is what Jesus, when he describes the kingdom ethics, this is how he describes them in Matthew chapter 4 through 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you, he says, when others revile you, when others persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil things against you. On my account, Jesus says, you are blessed. You are blessed. Blessed. Folks, when we absorb, when we've been wronged, and rather than clinging to our rights, when we lay them down for our brothers and sisters, Jesus says, You're blessed, that you are blessed. Now, this principle, for any of us who've lived with, you know, in any kind of relationship or have any kind of relationship for any period of time, so all of us, is true when it's applied you know, specifically to matters of the church, but it's also true generally as we just try to live in community with one another, with our spouses, right? I mean, there is so much that we can cling to. You should not speak to me like that. How dare you hold that from me? How dare you hold that against me? How dare you use that? How dare you sleep on my side of the bed? I mean, whatever, fill in the blank. In a marriage, the opportunities, the possibilities for conflict are endless. They present themselves every single day. Right? Every single day. As an employee working for somebody else. Constant opportunities for conflict. These are my rights. I mean, the power of the gospel, when we lay down what we rightfully deserve and should have coming to us, And we don't seek justice necessarily, but we're ready to extend things like mercy to one another. Folks, do you know that this reveals the power and the truth of the gospel? This is following the example of Jesus himself in any relationship, in any context. Famous preacher Henry Ward Beecher says, every man should keep a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his friends. Every single one of us. We should keep a good-sized cemetery that's specifically dedicated for the faults of our friends. And we should have a shovel in our hand on a regular basis. Again, this is hard. This is not easy. Our human nature wants what we rightfully deserve, right? We, we don't want people to offend us. If they do, we want revenge. We want things made right. And it's impossible to do apart from the help of Jesus. You know, Jesus gives us his example. He also gives us his spirit. And we are children of God. We are we are not simply, he goes on later in, this, in the section and, and focuses on different sins that we've been saved from. We're not just people who've been forgiven of our sins. We are sinners who've been transformed into completely new creatures, to completely new beings. And apart from his power, this is not a possibility. It may sound anecdotally like a good idea, but when it comes to actually executing it, it's no fun. It's no fun. We need his help. And he gives freely to us that which we need He also provides for us really good grounds. He does so in the the text. Really good reason for us to do this. Why would anybody want to do this? Why would anybody want to sacrifice and forgive quickly? Simple answer. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Talk about somebody who took one for the team. Jesus took one for you and for me. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3 through 8, as you just listen to the example that Jesus gives us. It's an example that we're also called to emulate, to follow, to model. Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others have this mind among you the mind that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 the same mind that is in Christ you have that mind have this mind he says among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross this is our leader this is the one that we're, the example that we're called to follow so as we step into conflict with our brothers and sisters we are called to go the way of the cross we're called to follow the way of Jesus to lay down our rights because we see our brothers and sisters as individuals that God has given us that we are to demonstrate love to The cross was not just excruciatingly painful for Jesus, but it was also a public spectacle. It was a humiliation for him and for those who were following him. And Jesus says, enduring that pain, embracing that humiliation, in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus does that. He says it was for his joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And we're called to do the exact same thing thing. If you go on into the section in verses 9 through 11, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexual sexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor reviles but revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Folks, the truth is. Every person in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a new creation, we are all former somethings. Every single one of us is a former something. Paul is juxtaposing their past identity with their current reality. You were sexually immoral. You were idolaters. You were adulterers. You were practicing homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swinders. This is who you were. You were sinners. And as sinners, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. See, the source of Paul's frustration as he confronts this issue in the church of Corinth, the reason he speaks with such Urgency and such severity. The real first word in the section is the word "dare you do this." It is to your shame. I mean, the tone of this text—he is rebuking this church. It's a very loving rebuke, but he's rebuking them. His source of frustration. Paul recognizes that the church is behaving inconsistently with their identity. They're not acting like Jesus' followers. They're not acting like a people who have received grace and received mercy. Right? They have received it. He says, you were this way, but God's love was poured out to you. His mercy was extended to you. And he goes on and says, in verse 11, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the original language, the word but is in front of every single one of those words. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. The emphasis is, how dare you, as a people who've received grace and mercy and have no reason to have received that grace and mercy, who've been given a new life, how dare you sit there having received all that God has poured out in Christ for you? How dare you hold that selfishly? And be hesitant to extend that to people around you. Even people who you've offended. Because guess what? You and your sins, you know who you offended? God himself. And how you selfish people. I mean, their inability to move through reconciliation with each other shows Paul that they do not understand the grace they've received. Their inability to move forward in the midst of conflict, to lay down rights, to, to lean into one another rather than to running out to the courts, their inability to do this, folks, is a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Paul is just, it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. You guys had the mind of Christ, this mind. You see the example that He laid down for you on the cross and that you're supposed to follow? You have that mind among you, the same spirit in you, and you're taking these little trivial problems out there to prove you're right, to get what's coming to you? This is not the way of Jesus. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were sinners. Now you inherit the kingdom of God. Folks, the gospel is, and I just want to pause real quick. Because I think, remember, he's talking about trivial things here. Okay? He's not talking about things like Abuse be it verbal, physical, sexual in nature. He's not talking about that type of a thing. He specifically refers to this issue as a trivial matter. Do not hear me say, if you are sitting under an abusive you know, in an, in an abusive relationship, if you are, are suffering through abuse, that you should just hold that back, that you should just keep that in house. Let us kind of deal with it quietly so nobody knows. That's not what he's saying, okay? Remember, Paul has appealed to the courts of Rome, okay, for things that were similar to abuse, because he didn't want to receive it. <laughs> so he appealed to the courts. Likewise, we would follow that same direction. However, However, to take small, trivial matters between brothers and sisters out there is as if to say we are not equipped with what we need in here. Now, I'll be honest, as a pastor, the times that we see conflict, like people seek pastors out for conflict in our church, it's not often. It's not often. We counsel in lots of different ways, but this is unique. This is, like, this is uniquely, if you think about the attention that Paul is giving it here, in the amount, the percentage of times that we offer counsel, at least I can just speak personally for me, like this is pretty low. So either A, there's not that much poop here, you know what I'm saying, which maybe is the case, but we know that it's here, you know, we know it's here. This should be the place that we start, right? And it's an opportunity as we reconcile, as we seek justice, and we reconcile ourselves with each other, and we're reconciled to God, it's an opportunity for the gospel to be displayed. And Paul says, you need to lean into that. You need to lean into that. The gospel is and always will be the message of reconciliation. It says so in 2 Corinthians 5:19. Our churches, our church. The church in our community should be the most reconciling, peaceable, relaxed, joyful place in our community. Our doors, folks, are always open wide, even to our enemies. Our doors are flung wide open to our enemies. So meek are we as followers of Jesus in the face of insults and injuries. So forgiving toward the undeserving are we as followers of Jesus. If we do make people angry, let it be for this reason. Because we refuse to join in selfish battles. We're following a higher calling. We are peacemakers, the true sons and daughters of God himself whose son came to earth to die for peace that we share, that we extend. So, let it be so for Parkview East. Let it be so for Parkview East. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be rub tension here. There will be. Don't ignore it. Deal biblically with it. I heard a pastor say recently that there are some issues where sort of the wider, especially in our day and age, um, sort of the wider range of separation between sort of different opinions and preferences wider range of separation that we have, the the further distance apart from us, is just more opportunity for the gospel to be a witness to our community. Because for the very fact that we can, with wide differences, wide range in preferences and disagreements and conflict, continue to live as the loving people of God, it shows the world, a world that is pushed to the, the polar ends right now, it shows the world a different way. It shows the world a different way. When the rest of the world is saying, How, why, why can't we just come together? You know what the gospel says? We can, but only by the blood of Jesus. It's an amazing opportunity. The, the polarity that is happening in our world is an amazing opportunity for us as the church to put the gospel on display. Say, so actually, there is a community of people who are loving, who are united. And who are holy. It's called the church. Just check it out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you as we just consider who you have made us to be as your people, Lord. We recognize that the ability to um, be obedient completely by ourselves is an, abil- an ability that we lack. Father, we thank you that as we just even consider doing some of the hard things that you've called us to in your word, um, we thank you that you have given us, you have resourced us well. Through the example of your son, Lord, and through your spirit. You've made your way clear for us as a people. And I pray that you give us the strength, Lord, to follow the path you've set before us, Lord. And we we acknowledge this morning that while it's hard, while it can be difficult at times, Lord, it's also for our joy. So I pray that you help us to walk it together, brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray you give us the strength the endurance, Lord, and the peace that can only come supernaturally from you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.